0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in!
1: Although religious rhetoric pervades everyday American culture and politics, The population of Americans who identify with no organized religion has actually quadrupled in just the last 25 years. Worldwide, the non-religious now make up the third largest religious category, following Christianity and Islam. In this episode, guest host Jackie Frost interviews Dr. Lois Lee, whose research explores the variety of beliefs and identities found within this growing population. They discuss how atheism, the non-religious identity that receives by far the most media attention, is only one non-religious identity among many. In fact, there are numerous other ways individuals react and relate to religion. Dr. Lee describes findings from her research on non-religious groups and individuals in Britain and the ways they think about enact, and even wear their non-religion in daily life.
0: Lois Lee, welcome to Office Hours.
2: Hello, nice to be here.
0: So listeners might not be familiar with the idea that social science identifies different types of non-religion in addition to just atheism or agnosticism. Can you talk a little bit about what non-religion is and how you understand this term in relation to other terms used to describe being without or against religion?
2: Yeah, sure, so so by non-religion we have um, actually not that much in mind. So. The idea is that the non-religious is just anything that's identified in terms of how it differs from religion. Um, And then we can use that to think about different things that are thought of as as different to religion um, and think a bit about why those things are being labelled as non-religious. But especially we have in mind things like atheism and agnosticism, which especially in the West are frequently thought of as non-religious phenomena. N- not always. Importantly, not always. Um, there are religions we think of as atheist and so on. Um, so they don't quite kind of uh, marry on to one another in a, in a direct way. Um, but oftentimes we are interested in non-religious atheists, non-religious agnostics. Um, and what the concept of non-religion helps us do there is think a little bit more broadly about what um, atheists and agnostics um and other non-believers, as they're known, um, what's going on with them. So often we talk about um, religious, we put as a pair religious and atheist. You know, we might say, I'm a Christian, so-and-so is an atheist. And if you think about that for a little bit, it starts to look like quite a strange pairing. So with the concept of religion and specific religions, like Christian and so on, we don't just want to think about beliefs. We realize there's a lot more going on to those those positions, that there might be cultural ties, there might be social relationships going on. If I go to church, for example, I might be enjoying um, connections with friends and so on. There's rituals, there's all these things going on. But when it comes to um, non-religious outlooks, we're very quick to jump straight to concepts like atheism, which are just all about belief. All that concept is telling me is that someone is without theistic belief. So one thing that... um, at least I've done with the concept of non-religion, is try and take a step back from these really cognitive, intellectualized ways of thinking about the non-religious and try and think a bit more about whether non-religious people have social lives, have cultural ties and ritual ties to their non-religious identities.
0: Great, so in your book, um, you say that recognizing the non-religious is also your method. Can you talk a little bit about how you think of this as a method of analysis and how you kind of um, got to that idea?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm already hinting at that in what I've said about um, the way in which we could use the concept of non-religion to understand the world around us. Um, It's not a method per se, but it opens up opportunities to analyze the non-religious in different ways. So the kind of standard way of thinking about um, people who... uh, who are non-religious so by that we probably have in mind the nuns that's n-o-n-e-s not the other kind of nuns and um this is basically a survey category that's come about through affiliation based questions so lots of surveys ask people if they affiliate with a religion or if they don't and from that we get this this don't people who sign up for the don't category and we call them the nuns so we're um, interested in this group but there are two ways of approaching this group and analyzing um, any data related to them. And one is a kind of classical way of thinking that has ties both in certain religious histories and also in um, secularization in in relation to thinking about secularization and what's now called the secularization paradigm. And in that way of thinking, um, what people are interested in is the extent to which um, populations are religious. And the, the idea is that, you know, as I've already spoken about, religion is a very culturally rich uh, phenomenon that we might learn lots about. But for the non-religious, they simply can be understood in terms of being without religion. So it's a, a total kind of um, um, decline model. We're just interested in how, what life's like if you don't have access to this, this cultural um, phenomenon in space. In my approach, which is a more kind of relational approach, I'm interested in um, what, not so much in terms of what the nuns have moved away from and how they're kind of coping and surviving under those conditions, but what they have in a sense moved towards. So are there um, religious-like things in their lives that we've neglected to look at because we've been thinking about things in terms of secularization? So, for example, what kind of life cycle rituals do non-religious people um, choose and involve themselves with? What kind of existential beliefs and metaphysical beliefs do they have? Where do they think humans come from? And where, um, where, where do they go when they die? And so on. And then what, how does that play out in terms of their ethical lives, their ritual lives, and so on? So... Thinking about um, a religious-like phenomenon, uh, phenomena is one way to kind of approach the non-religious in quite a different way. The other kind of aspect of that is thinking about how these people relate to the religious. Um, so especially um, Johannes Quack, for example, talks about the religion related in his concept of the non-religious. Um, I think my work tends to kind of in- be interested in religious like, as it were, and he's interested in the religion related. Um, and by that, we're sort of thinking about um, the way which non-religious people take a position towards religious others, have feelings about them, and so on. Again, that's not a matter of looking at people in terms of what they're lacking. It's really looking at kind of concrete aspects of their lives. You know, how do, how does the ex-Christian ex, ex uh, Christian feel in sitting through a kind of a marriage ceremony of a friend, um, what's going on in their minds, what's going on in their bodies, and and so on. So engaging with the non-religious is a kind of concrete position, rather than being interested in um, the a-religious, which is really what the secularization theory encourages, to, encourages us to think about, just being without religion entirely, opens up a whole new set of questions methodological possibilities and so on. So I think that's what I have in mind in terms of um, seeing a recognition of the non-religious as a a method.
0: Right, right, great. So um, what you call this kind of new perspective is thinking about the substantial non-religious versus the insubstantial secular, correct? Yeah. So... um, You make an important point that these substantive non-religious forms often go unnoticed. Um, Can you talk about some examples of substantive secular forms that you encountered in your research and why they're often um, unnoticed?
2: Right. So um, so in my book, I I was quite interested in um, types of, well, I worked with mainstream, as it were, non-religious populations. So another approach would be to work with really overt forms of non-religious culture. So people who state their difference from religion in really explicit ways. And so that might be people who have a strong atheist identity. So they're identifying themselves as other than theistic in this case. um, And that's really important to them. And in recent years, we've seen quite a few examples um, of these very kind of colourful, polemic, um, otherwise very, very visible forms of non-religious culture. So work around um, the Sunday Assembly, which some people might have read about in the media, and um, um, I know you're working on as well, looking at what's called the Atheist Church in the media. I guess lots of people have come to it through that kind of concept. Or it might be um, the New Atheism and kind of work associated with Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and so on. And um, another example is the Atheist Bus Campaign, um, which was a, um, a series of adverts on the side of buses that started with uh, started in London um, and um, saying, there probably is no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life, or something very similar to that. Um, and then this kind of campaign was, again, very visible in the media, picked up. Um, and taken up in lots of other settings within the UK and then internationally. Um, so I think there were several campaigns around different parts of the US. So these are the kinds of really overt forms of non-religious culture that maybe attract our attention, that get a lot of comment in the media and so on. Um, my work was with people who were a bit more equivocal in how they describe themselves as non-religious so I worked with people who just simply on a survey said, tick that no religion box, so the nuns. Um, and that included some people who were, who were atheistic, who had strong atheistic identities, some people who don't believe in God but didn't have those strong identities, a real kind of range of perspectives. And I, and I went out to try and find that range of perspectives. So then one thing that kind of came through from that was that there's quite a lot of Tacit knowledge um, and banal forms of non-religious culture that people are kind of aware of and engaged with in certain ways, um, and that we might not notice so readily as we do these very overt um, uh, forms of non-religious culture. Um, so to give you some examples, why I talked with people about um, about their own identities. But I also talked with people about the identities of their close friends and family. Um, And I started off with quite a kind of basic idea that I wanted to get a sense of whether all their friends had the same non-religious identity as they did or whether there were differences. But actually, from talking about um, uh, these identities, it kind of reminded people of quite kind of subtle ways in which knowledge is being shared around about around non-religion so it might just be a question of saying oh this is my friend jane i know she's an atheist and me saying okay how, how do you know that how do you know that and then a sort of a lot of head scratching going on and then a sort of sense of oh well we talked about it a lot at university but we haven't talked about it much since then it doesn't matter to us and through these kinds of comments you get a sense that actually. Um, in relationships, people are often establishing knowledge about other people's religious and non-religious positions, but then then they don't think it's very important from that point. But on the basis of that knowledge, they're able to communicate around religion in the media, religion in their social lives, non-religion in the media, non-religion in their, their social lives, um, and take a lot of um, shared knowledge about each other for granted. So someone I spoke to said, that most of her friends were non-religious but she had one very good friend that was religious and she said you you kind of forget about that and then when you when you remember it comes as a shock and she at those moments would realize she had to kind of edit what she was saying or kind of um, be sensitive to a different kind of audience and those kind of moments are when that tacit knowledge come you know come to light so we can ignore it most of the time but there's when there's when, that, when there are different ways of um, subverting norms that they become visible. So that, that's one kind of way um, that more banal forms of non-religious culture um, I began to see were, were um, a big part of people's lives in a way they weren't necessarily aware of. Um, and then culturally, I think there were other examples. Like if you then start looking for these things, you start noticing that um, I was working in um, southeast of England for my work um, for my project and I started noticing that actually there's a there's a greetings card on sale here that makes a kind of flippant joke about religion or, or sets up a kind of atheist perspective in some way and that's just here in the background and no one notices, no one comments um, and one argument about that is, well that's probably because it doesn't matter it's really superficial, doesn't tell us anything about the social world but these are the kinds of Um, messages that help us reproduce our our sense of cultural norms and so on and we can imagine by thinking through what similar kinds of um, banal non-religious messages how they might not seem very banal in certain other contexts say for example in a more religious context a kind of casual um, pejorative you know reference to a religious culture might be really problematic. In some cases, it's really problematic. We we know this. And um, we can use that contrast to sort of rethink about whether these sorts of banal forms of non-religious are as kind of superficial as we might immediately think they are. So those are some kind of different ways um, of noticing the non-religious around us where we might not be aware of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you also talk about how non-religion can be embodied and that there are even atheist clothes and shoes, I thought was a fun example. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
2: Yeah, well, there's there's two um, ways in which non-religious positions might be embodied. And um, yeah, the kind of clothes and shoes example, those are about um, messages being carried on the body, as it were. Um, so there are some great examples, Um, the anthropologist um, Casey Aston writes a lot and I I talk a little bit about um, the atheist shoes which were I think they started in Germany but there was a company making these shoes that say atheist on the sole of the shoe Um, and they're they're a group of um, producers who are um, not just based in Germany, I think there's a group There's uh, some individuals in the States and some in the UK. Um, And again, it's one of those things that sort of seems quite jokey, but you can imagine it's quite a strong statement, particularly in some contexts, Mm -hmm. albeit a subtle one. If you're wearing shoes, no one's going to notice until you cross your legs and reveal this on the sole of your shoe is branded the word atheist. T-shirts, yeah, there's, you know, there are um, non-religious meeting groups. Often there's a place where you see lots of kind of branded non-religious clothing um, and T-shirts bearing sort of jokey slogans or very pejorative um, comments on religion and so on are quite commonplace. But actually outside of those settings, um, these things are quite um, common too. One example I talk about in the book is a T-shirt shirt. I saw, actually, at a conference in Antwerp, so it was outside of my official research site, um, and the T-shirt said, um, football is my religion, and it had a picture of, um, a kind of familiar picture, um, image of um, Jesus Christ and the Sacred Heart. And this was being sold in a very mainstream context and is very jokey and fits into this sort of well, isn't that quite a kind of superficial thing? But for the wearer, that T-shirt is sending out quite a clear message, uh, quite clear positioning about where that person stands on uh, religious belief. Um, they're presumably not um, religiously active. So, again, I was often more interested in, in these occasions that, that we kind of might not notice, that they look quite mainstream, maybe superficial or so on. But they actually send out quite strong signals a lot of times.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you said that wearing atheism, or non-religion I guess, um, is one way of having it embodied, and what would be the second way?
2: Well, so there is um, a tradition of thinking about embodiment that really focuses much more on habits and dispositions and comportments, you know, what we do with our bodies. Um, and in my work um, I talk a bit, I think there's a lot more work to be done around this um, and I was just at a conference um, fascinating conference in uh, Germany on the secular body and what this might entail lots of people exploring that from lots of different directions, so I think that's a really kind of exciting area of work um, and I feel like in my book I sort of scratch the surface of that really, but I talk a bit about um, emotional responses, so um, people who um, feel uh, have sort of strong physical reactions to participating in different kinds of religious ceremonies um, in a way that's really shaped by their sense of otherness from those ceremonies and, and that can play out in different ways so there's a kind of process of undisciplining um, as it were for some people So who are participating in religious services where they perhaps once um, Uh, felt at home and they've learned the physical dispositions involved. They've learned when to bow their head in prayer. They've learned when to kneel. They've learned when to be quiet and so on. And then coming back to those settings and feeling in some way distant from them, um, those same physical dispositions can be sometimes quite challenging in a way that um, uh, one's intellectual engagement might not pose the same problems. So people I interviewed talked about Um, going to a service and not praying or singing along that doesn't that doesn't matter because they're not counting that as an intellectual engagement so there are ways of controlling or feeling in control of one's intellectual engagement and then when it came to bowing the head in prayer having quite a strong sense of physical resistance to that Um, and that kind of sense of control of the situation really falling apart at that moment So there are those kinds of very um, non-religious modes of uh, embodiment. And and I think those are quite irreligious. They're kind of negatively iterated. But there are more positive types too. Um, I talk a bit about kinds of excitement and curiosity that are very physically, um, they're very kind of embodied experiences um, from people who think of themselves as non-religious and feel somehow more excited by... Um, engaging with, uh, say, visiting a a museum where there are religious um, objects to see, or perhaps visiting um, a church or another place of worship on a holiday as as a tourist. And um, people talked about a sense of being even more excited or even more curious or finding it even more mysterious or mystical because they felt like they weren't part of it. So there are those kinds of emotional um, and um, uh, physical disciplines of different sorts that might be going on. And as, as is so, so much the case in my book, um, it's a lot about opening up our eyes to noticing these different occasions and thinking about the many kind of research projects that might proliferate if we're sensitive to these possibilities. So so I'm giving you a few examples here, but that's kind of very much what I'm doing in the book and saying, you know, you know with enthusiasm, really looking forward to hearing more accounts of that in different um, geographic settings as well and other cultural settings.
0: Um, And my last question and kind of um, bridging on your comment about different contexts and cultures. So while your book deals with non-religion more broadly, your cases are set in the UK. Um, so how might the UK be a unique comparison to other cultures, um, including like the United States, where there is a definite increase in non-religion, but a much larger proportion of people report having religious beliefs than they do in the, Uni- in the United Kingdom?
2: Well, in one way, I feel like I should be putting that question to you. <laughs> uh, having read the book, you know, um, from a different perspective, you'll probably have very interesting insights to offer, um, and especially with your work with the Sunday Assembly. Um, again, I'm excited to see what happens with the different uh, research mm-hmm. that's going on to the, to the different atheist churches um, broadly construed that includes the Sunday Assembly but might include other congregations. Um, And I think from this work, we might get some really interesting cultural comparisons are are the same texts playing out in different ways um, in these different settings and so on. I think there's definitely a number of dimensions that we might want to think about in terms of um, looking at non-religion in these different settings. One is clearly how... um, how dominant religious cultures are in those settings and which religious cultures are dominant. Um, so both of these are going to shape the kinds of non-religious cultures that emerge. Um, you know, Richard Dawkins has been described as a Protestant atheist, for example, and I think that's something he resisted for a while. I think he's started to embrace it now. Um, but certainly from a, um, more cultural sociological approach or an anthropological approach this seems quite a straightforward um, claim to make and a very compelling one his way of thinking about what religion is what his own non-religious position is is very shaped by um, Protestant ways of thinking and ongoing engagements with um, Protestant cultural life Um, even the concept of atheism um, we can see is very shaped by Um, Protestant trajectories in terms of its focus on theism as the core kind of the core element of religion Um, and it's interesting to see in kind of emerging uh, cross-cultural research looking at non-religion whether atheism um, and agnosticism and belief-based statements um, turn up as being the most significant way of um, engaging um, or the most significant form that non-religious positioning takes um, and also whether that has the same discursive prominence as it clearly does um, in, in the UK and in some other settings. And, and this is a, uh, an area where actually there's some similarity between the US and the UK because they both share, um, at least to some extent, this Protestant history. And the new atheism, for example, has been very resonant and contribu- contrib- contributors are from um, North America and the UK um, and the audiences are very much based in the UK and the US with other interlocutors as well, certainly, but there's, there's definitely some kind of cultural similarity there that, we, that allows this exchange. Um, but there are clearly differences um, of many kinds, um, but one would be concerned with religious diversity in the US and the likelihood that non-religious cultures are going to be shaped by that. Um, And there are also kind of norms around um, religion um, that are different in the US and the UK. So in the US, there are certainly occasions where issues about discrimination against non-religious people is a really strong part of the picture. And that's much less common, although by no means absent, no, by no means absent in the UK um, in terms of shaping the kinds of um, non-religious feelings and beliefs that are coming through. Um, that One caveat to that is that I think we really need to be aware, as we get deeper and deeper into understanding non-religion in cultural terms, the um, finding is always about diversity. You know, this is such a large population. It's the non-religious are counted as the third, the third largest religion, so to speak, in the world. So it's not surprising that we're going to um, find a lot of diversity in that group if we cease to imagine non-religion as simply the absence of religion, a kind of naturalized um, state of humanity that's simply unfettered by a religious culture. If we think of things, we don't think of it in that those terms and think of non-religion as a cultural phenomenon. It's immediately likely that we're going to find enormous cultural diversity and indeed that is what we're finding and one line of diversity is regional and it's not that's not just on the national scale but looking at much more localized um, phenomena. so um, the british demographer david Bose um, and siobhan MacAndrew have written a chapter about um, non-religious groups in the uk and one thing they find is um, a degree of clustering. So it's not just the you don't want to just look at the 50% of Britons who say they have no religion. You want to look at where, they, where they're found across the UK. And, you know, we find just in the same way that we find religious um, clustering, there's the same kind of regional clustering with the non-religious. So just to say, just to make a comparison between the UK and the US might not get at more, more specific things that are going on. You might find, for example, that um, certain areas of New York and London there are striking similarities that are very different from other regions within, you know, New York and other regions in the U.S. or London and other regions in the U.K. Um, so, yeah, infinite numbers of projects that could be conducted here to enrich the the comparison we might want to make.
0: Right. Um, Well, we've been talking to Lois Lee, whose new book is called Recognizing the Non-Religious, Reimagining the Secular. Lois, thank you so much for stopping by Office Hours.
2: My absolute pleasure.
1: This episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Lois Lee talking about her new book, Recognizing the Non-Religious, Reimagining the Secular, which is available now from Oxford University Press. It was hosted by The Society Pages co-editor Jackie Frost and produced by Matt Gunther at the Sociology Department at the University of Minnesota. You can find more podcast episodes and all kinds of great written content on our website, thesocietypages.org.